You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey, you. Okay. I am very excited. That's making me think of a Dwight line. Anyway, uh, I am very excited that you are here for this epic conversation with the amazing, the incredible Christy Harrison. We spent two hours talking, geeking out, diving deep, taking breaks a couple of weeks ago. So I'm actually going to be spreading our conversation across two episodes. So this week, part one. Next week, episode 297, is going to drop with part two. And there is some great stuff in part two that you are not going to want to miss. Christy and I also recorded a 20-minute bonus conversation for patrons. And I was really torn on whether to use that for this week's bonus or next week's bonus. And I just decided I really didn't want to wait because it's so good. So next week, there's going to be a bonus with me. And this week, you get this really ultra personal chat between Christy and I. I talk about my own disordered eating and orthorexia. I share the part of her book that made me burst into tears. Alex had to run over and hug me. Something just cracked open in me that had been needing to be cracked open for a long time. Uh, We also talk about the cost of performing uh, and the ways that we perform around food and sex, and also where the advent of the quote unquote obesity epidemic came from and why it's actually really new and about profits and not science. Uh, Anyway, if you support the show at $3 a month and above, you can tune in for this really beautiful conversation at patreon.com slash SGR podcast. If you don't already support the show, do that. You definitely want to hear these extra 20 minutes Christy generously gave to us. So head there after you listen to this. There's also a lot that I want to share that'll help us kind of settle in for this conversation with Christy, because so many of us have really complicated relationships with our bodies, myself included, and it's ongoing. And these complications have a significant and painful impact on our experiences of gender, love, desire, libido, sex, and ultimately what it's all about, pleasure. Early in my chat with Christy, you're going to hear us talking about how Diet culture indoctrinates us into distrusting ourselves and our bodies. Like, how can we trust our choices? How can we consent to things from a really powerful, informed place if we don't fundamentally trust ourselves and our bodies? Diet culture robs us of our autonomy. We're trained to believe people outside of ourselves, to distrust the cues that these bodies of ours give us. And so many of us are so concerned with consent, but we're skipping right past whether we even have the tools or the skills to listen to and trust these bodies of ours. And if we can't trust ourselves with food, then we are fundamentally moving from a a distrustful relationship of self So how can we fully trust hungers and other arenas of our life, including sex? Um, Christy and I talk about how like when we cut ourselves off from certain emotions, we're cutting ourselves off from all of our emotions in a way. And so it's the same with our hungers. I'm also going to share some really crucial quotes from Christy's book as a way to kind of frame our conversation because Christy and I 
um, already have a shared language and a shared understanding around this topic that I think is going to bring up a lot of really intense feelings for people. And I want to share just a couple of, there's so, so much research Christy did and she has such a wealth of information. Um, and I can't possibly share it all because it's like thousands of citations in her book and powerful tidbits, but just a couple of things that'll help us kind of arrive in a similar place. But before I do that, I want to just take a moment to say thank you. (laughs) Like really, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, all of your responses to my answer about desirability politics and body preferences from last week have fucking blown my mind. When Alex heard it, Last week, he told me that I needed to turn my answer on the podcast into a blog post because he said there were some things in there that I have never thought about, and I think a lot of people are going to want to hear it. So I was a little hesitant to take his advice, but holy fucking shit, the post has been read over 30,000 times in the past couple of days. It's been shared on Facebook almost 400 times to my knowledge. There's probably shares happening now because I've seen it go into some rather big groups and I'm sure people are sharing it and I just can't see it anymore. But um, I have been getting the most incredible feedback and I just feel so supported. Jet Noir, who is a sex educator and founder of Manifest Black, If you aren't familiar with Manifest Black, it's a burlesque celebration of all black full-spectrum masculinity. And uh, anyway, Jet Noir shared the piece and said this, please share this the next time your friend claims they have a quote-unquote preference for dating certain people. I give lectures on racial fetishization in sexually charged spaces, usually play parties, and how it keeps people of color away from certain scenes. Your words truly resonated with me. Thank you for your work. So thank you, Jet Noir. That was so touching, and I'm so glad you found it so impactful. So many of my mentors, Andre Shakti, yelled in all caps, challenge your desirability politics, I dare you. So Honestly, I was really, really scared to share it as a blog post because we all know what it's like for women on the interwebs, especially fat women. And getting that kind of viral attention is something that um, I've been trying to avoid. As the numbers rose each day, I felt more and more and more fear. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for the threats and the insults and the fragility. And frankly, they're probably still going to come at some point, but there's been so much support and excitement that I feel um, really bolstered and hopeful. I mean, other than one person, almost everyone has been excited about engaging in a really nuanced dialogue. And I think part of it is because so much of what we were unpacking together around preferences and where our preferences come from wasn't about whether or not you're a bad person. Like it makes sense that so many of these things that feel like preferences feel so inherent to us, but it is about having a responsibility to investigate our stories within the context of the world we live in. And I just have so much hope after this week. There have been some really challenging discussions, like people asking for even more nuance, especially around things like trauma or sharing perspectives outside of my own that brought in even more depth and offered me stuff I hadn't thought about. But seriously, 99.9% of everything that I've seen this week have been about deepening into the conversation. And I'm just so here for that. I'm so here for that for all of us, more nuance. So it's needless to say been a really intense and surprising week to say the least. And if you didn't catch it, you can either hear my response about preferences and bodies in episode 295 of the podcast, um, or you can check out my blog post if you prefer sharing that over a podcast. So I'll link to my blog post at donsarah.com slash EP 296 because we're on episode 296. 
It's also interesting because Christy and I do a really yummy exploration of desirability politics and like preferences for certain kinds of bodies. We also talk about um, some of the work she's done with clients whose partners are concerned that, you know, their partner's body is getting bigger or about what they're eating or how their body is changing and the impact of that at a health, like a physical health level. We're going to go into that in part two. So next week's episode, but we recorded that a couple of weeks ago. And I just think that it's really, really interesting that so many of us want better conversations uh, about preferences, bodies, diversity in bodies, pleasure. Oh, I'm loving it. Okay. So back to Christy and our bodies. I really wanted to share a couple of bits that I highlighted in Christy's new book, Anti-Diet, because so many of us have so much misinformation about weight and health. And in fact, so many of our doctors who we trust to help us navigate our health to feel better, are operating from a place of deep stigma and false information. And it creates a lot of stigma and anxiety among us collectively. Like our fears, our stigma, our shame, our anxieties, they all separate us from these bodies of ours that are wise and and literally built for pleasure and sensation. One of the things that's so common in the work that I do with clients one-on-one is discovering that a client who's feeling really concerned about maybe like low libido and feeling cut off from their desire and the erotic is also dieting, restricting, carrying a lot of body shame. And uh, Dana Sturdevant, who's one of my mentors from Be Nourished, is actually quoted in Christie's book saying, it's not possible to heal our relationship with food and body while trying to control the size and shape of our body. In the feels, right? Ugh, it's so complicated. It's so, so complicated. So I thought it would be helpful for us to just have a small little snippet of some of the deliciousness that is in Christy's book because Christy and I kind of use that as a springboard for this much deeper conversation. And I want to invite you to notice, like if you feel resistance, anger, defensiveness coming up as I share these quotes from the book and also my chat with Christy, It's normal for us to feel those things, especially when we start to feel confronted around some core beliefs we've carried. Like if we start to realize that we've been lied to at such a fundamental level, or when we start realizing how much harm we've caused ourselves and other people, that hurts. And so you might feel some of that come up. I also just want to note that um, if you are in a place where you are um, very new to eating disorder recovery or you're still actively in your eating disorder, there might be some things you hear in this episode that are triggering. So please tread really lightly, um, tend to yourself, and stop if it feels like too much. You can always circle back later. Uh, So here are a couple of tidbits from the book. Now there's nine that I pulled out. So the first one, these are all direct quotes. So number one, the research firm market data reported in early 2019 that the diet industry was worth more than $72 billion, a record high. $72 billion. So when we think about that, we realize there are a lot of people who have a lot of a financial stake and keeping all of us invested in diet and wellness and stuck in that cycle. Number two, a 2008 survey by researchers at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in conjunction with Self Magazine found that 65% of American women between the ages of 25 and 45 have some form of disordered eating and that another 10% would meet the criteria for eating disorders. 65% 
of American women between 25 and 45 have some form of disordered eating and 10% would meet the criteria for eating disorders. I think that's important because eating disorders are the um, most deadly form of mental illness. They have the highest rate of mortality. Number three, these issues are on the rise in men as well, and transgender people are actually more likely than cisgender folks to have both diagnosed eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors. So even though the majority of the research that's available right now is around cisgender women, specifically white women, as the research field expands, we're starting to find that um, disordered eating and eating disorders actually impact trans folks and non-binary folks at much higher rates. That's important. Okay, number four, intentional weight loss efforts have been shown to cause long-term weight gain for up to two-thirds of the people who embark on them. So if the national average weight was creeping up over the years, it's a good bet that dieting was at at least partly responsible for the increase. That's pretty important. And there are many, 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 many more statistics and studies that back that up that are in the book. Uh, So another study that's being cited and talked about here in number five. So um, this quote says, the practice of going gluten-free to, quote, heal the gut can in fact mask disordered eating, a much more likely cause of digestive troubles than gluten, given that as many as 98% of people with eating disorders have gastrointestinal disorders, and that up to 44% of general patients seeking help for gastrointestinal problems have disordered eating behaviors. So um, there's a lot in the book that Christy unpacks around um, food sensitivities, elimination diets, and the harm that a lot of those can cause us. So I thought that was a really interesting one. Number six, the quote, a robust body of evidence shows that intentional weight loss efforts don't work with a failure rate that many researchers agree is north of 95%. And then quote number seven builds on that, a large scale 2015 study of more than 278,000 people found that within five years, the proportion of people who've regained their lost weight or more weight is somewhere between 95 and 98%. Now, these numbers are repeated over and over and over again in the first half of the book. The book is cut into two different parts, so part one and part two, with multiple chapters inside of each of the parts. And in part one, there are so many studies that Christy cites over and over and over and over and over again with huge numbers, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people that for decades since the 50s have consistently shown this. There have been panels by the NIH, so many things showing that between 95 and 98% of people who try to lose weight not only regain all the lost weight, but they often gain more at the five-year mark. And that's important because what that means is it's not you. It is not your failure. It is not your fault. It's the system that's the problem. It's the system, the stories, the lies. This is not our failure individually. But diet culture wants us to believe that because $72 billion is an awful lot of money for people to lose if suddenly all of us woke up and realized our bodies aren't the problem. The eighth quote, this one's a little bit longer, on the science of inflammation and health, now these are my words, on the science of inflammation and health, Christy writes, in other words, having bad shit happen to you, especially experiences of social injustice, is a risk factor for both increased inflammation and chronic disease. Another risk factor for chronic inflammation is weight cycling, repeatedly losing and regaining weight, which is what almost inevitably happens when people embark on weight loss efforts. And when the true cause of inflammation is psychological distress, injustice, and yo-yo dieting, is eating kale really going to help? So I love that because there's a little bit of sass in that. Uh, But Christy also breaks down a whole bunch of the science around inflammation 
because there's such fear right now around chronic inflammation and going on anti-inflammatory diets. And there's some really interesting science, like pretty significant studies showing how little we actually know about it, but the things that actually contribute to inflammation are more tied to weight cycling, which is losing weight and then feeling sad about the regain and then trying to lose again and going up and down and up and down, which I did for many, many years, probably decades, and also weight stigma. So important. And then the final quote that I want to share from the book, because frankly, you just really, 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 really need to get yourself this book. There's like 10,000 more statistics and factoids that I underlined. This book has probably more ink from me than from the publisher because there was so much I was getting so excited about. But I wanted to share this. What you may not know is that abundant scientific evidence shows that weight stigma is an independent risk factor for an array of negative physical health conditions, such as diabetes and heart disease, regardless of people's actual body size. A person in a smaller body with a lot of weight-based self-loathing may actually be at greater risk for poor health outcomes than a person in a much larger body who's learned to accept their size and fight back against weight stigma. Kind of a huge deal. It flies in the face of so much of what we see being sold to us in magazines and on posters in our doctor's offices and so many other things. So Christy and I are going to spend a lot of time in part one of our conversation, which is this week's episode, talking about our desire for love, acceptance, pleasure, joy, and how so many of us sacrifice these things in our quest to control our bodies because we've been told that it's only after our bodies change that we can achieve those things or, or deserve those things. We also talk about how our bodies are just so fucking wise and that they're going to do everything in their power to avoid famine. And restriction does really fucked up things to the ways that we think about both sex and food. We've talked about that a lot on the show over the years around um, shame and stigma around porn and masturbation and how when we try to not do the things, uh, when we try to lock it away in a closet and shut ourselves down, it actually creates more compulsion. You're also going to hear lots of parallels between the ways we talk about abstinence in food and abstinence in sex, the ways that we become compulsive around both food and sex, when we feel shame or when we can't own our hungers and desires. Christy shares this really personal, sweet story about sexual fantasies that she had during her period of disordered eating. And then in part two of our chat, which drops next Sunday, um, you're going to hear more about how pleasure not only increases our mental health, but also how eating for pleasure improves our physical health and the nutrients that our bodies get. Eating for pleasure. Wouldn't that be an extraordinary way for all of us to move through the world? You're going to hear about why we think we can't control ourselves around certain foods like sugar or cake or chips, and what's actually behind that. And then we're also, again, going to talk about desirability and the harm we cause when we kind of um, start doing that concern trolling around the people in our lives, around what they're eating, how they are or are not moving, which is to say there's a lot to unpack here. One other thing that I just want to make really clear before we jump in, all of us have been indoctrinated into diet culture. We did not consent to this. We didn't choose this. It was forced upon us from the youngest of ages. And when we start to realize the depth of the harm that we might have caused ourselves and our bodies, the harm that we might have caused people we love, like if we're parents and we put our kids on non-consensual diets, it can bring up really big, ugly feelings which is normal. I have been there many times. Christy has been there many times. You'll hear us talk about that. So many of our colleagues and loved ones have been there. But don't be surprised if you feel some of that um, constriction and shrinking and rigidity sneaking in as you listen to this episode and next week's episode. If you notice that, maybe pause, take some deep breaths, look at the space around you, look out a window, go for a walk, come back. And try and listen from a place of curiosity. 
because what's on the other side of those feelings is so much more freedom and choice and pleasure and desire and agency. And I want more pleasure and agency for all of us. So Christy and I both really firmly believe that each and every one of us gets to choose what we do with our body. And we are not condemning individuals who are doing their very best, even if that means you aren't quite ready to break up with diet culture right now. We live in a world that's very violent towards bodies that don't conform to a certain ideal. And sometimes the ways to survive that violence is to collude with it. But we are condemning those who profit off of the diet industry and the sneakier version of diet culture, which has become wellness culture these days. Um, when you read about how diet culture morphed into wellness culture in this book and the specific marketing firm that helped that happen, you're going to be fucking enraged. But anyway, we are condemning the people who build personal brands off of pers pushing certain kinds of movement and food and body ideals that don't also take into account things like the harm, the stigma, the anti-Black racist and colonial roots of diet culture, the classism and the sexism that's baked into it all. We're condemning the industry, the system, the institution, and the culture. I am really excited for more of us to feel like we can honor our hungers, our hunger for food, our hunger for sex and pleasure, connection. I'm so hopeful that more of us are waking up to the insidiousness and the lies about health that we've been sold so we can actually start existing in these bodies of ours and working on healing the distrust. There's so much possible on the other side of that. It has to be where we start our conversations about consent and the erotic too. So for everyone who's listening, who's a sex educator, who's sex positive, who moves in kink circles and um, polyamory circles and all the other things that are adjacent to this, we have to be able to talk about the body and the ways that we're indoctrinated into distrusting and leaving this body. So let me tell you a little bit about Christy, her official bio, and then we will jump in. Christy Harrison, MPHRD CDN, is an anti-diet registered dietitian nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the book Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. She offers online courses and private intuitive eating coaching to help people all over the world make peace with food and their bodies. Since 2013, Christy has hosted Food Psych!, a weekly podcast exploring people's relationships with food and paths to body liberation. And I was actually on Food Psych about two years ago. Christy and I had a lot of fun. We talked all about pleasure. So if you want to check that out, our conversation on her show was episode 141. And I'm going to link to that. So donsarah.com slash EP296 for links to my episode, plus Christy's podcast, her website, her book, and everything else that I've mentioned. Also, quickly, be sure to sign up for the Body Trust Summit. It starts March 11th. It's free. It's entirely online. It's seven days of conversations just like this about diet culture, eating disorder recovery, intuitive eating, pleasure, joy, and movement, the power of community, and learning to trust and come home to these bodies of ours. Um, Alex and I produced it on the back end for Hillary and Dana at Be Nourished, and I'm speaking at it too, all about using pleasure as a way to return to the body and to experience embodiment. So a link to register is in the show notes. Um, so be sure to sign up for that because it's right around the corner. Here is me and Christy. Welcome to Sex Gets Real, Christy. Uh, to say I'm excited about today would be the understatement of the week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me, Don. I'm so excited, too. I love your show. I love everything you're about. So really excited oh. to talk. Well, the feeling is mutual. I sent so many people to your podcast, Food Psych, and so much of the work that you do. Uh, and so many people have found me because of our chat on your podcast. So hopefully we're going to have some really nice cross-pollination happening. Yes, I love it. 
Okay. So the reason that we're talking today, um, besides the fact that I just love you and think you're amazing (laughs) is that you have a new book out that is amazing. And I want everyone listening to go get a copy and it's called anti-diet and you're talking about why obsessing over what you eat is bad for your health and reclaiming your time, money, well-being, and happiness through intuitive eating. So congratulations on putting out a whole book. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, <laughs> it was quite a labor of love and, and a long process to get there for sure. The research that you put into this is extraordinary. Thank you. Like I, you know, people know I've been through Be Nourished's Body Trust provider certification. I'm certified as a body trust provider. I've done all kinds of conferences and research and I've read all kinds of papers. And there was a significant amount of research and numbers in your book that were new to me and or that um, really deepened some of the things that I had already learned. And so I just appreciate so much the depth and the care that you put into helping to kind of lay out why we should be moving away from diet culture. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really wanted it to be, you know, comprehensive, as comprehensive as possible. Obviously, nothing is entirely comprehensive, but I wanted to have like as much data and as much scientific evidence in there as possible so that people could see this as like a foundation for moving away from diet culture and also like give this to their doctor, give this to their skeptical partner, give this to their mother, you know, whoever Mm -hmm. in your life is needing some convincing, like this book can hopefully help speak to them as well. Yeah. So where I would love to start, (laughs) because as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I could probably talk to you for like three hours about this book (laughs) and we don't have that kind of time and I'm sure people don't want to listen quite that long. Uh, So there's a lot of places we're going to go today, but I would love to just kind of start by anchoring us in how the desire to shrink our bodies, our desire to diet, to be seen as healthy is really about our desire to be loved, to be good, to belong. And it's about this desire for connection that has been twisted and, um, and really made ugly by diet culture as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit more about the things that in all of your work around eating disorders and diets and wellness culture we are actually seeking and that, you know, diet culture and wellness are are promising us, but actually can't deliver on. Like, what is mm-hmm. that desire underneath? What are more of us really wanting that we aren't getting? Oh, such a good question. I love that we're starting there too, because I think it's a really important foundation to think about like what we're promised and what we think this stuff is going to give us, what we think following diet culture's rules is going to give us that we can actually get elsewhere and Mm -hmm. that we're sort of looking in the wrong place. Not that we are doing anything wrong by that, but that the culture has conditioned us to look in this place where we're not actually going to find what we're looking for. And yeah, so I think it, you know, it really comes out of this belief system and I trace the history of it in the book, you know, that diet culture sort of emerged out of racism and xenophobia and misogyny and the fat phobic ideas that underpin diet culture didn't really come along until that root system of like racism, misogyny, and uh, xenophobia was was there, was in place. Fat phobia sort of grew out of that. And from there, diet culture's belief system was developed. And the sort of main tenets of that belief system are that, you know, we worship thinness, we equate it to health and moral virtue. We promote weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, whether that's, you know, health, moral, social, all of the above types of status. Um, and that, you know, our society oppresses people who don't match up with a supposed picture of health and well-being and that we demonize some foods and elevate others and that, you know, food is good and bad. Food has moral value. And so, you know, that belief system, I think, is really has has been very rooted into Western culture since the early, you know, the turn of the 20th century, the early 1900s, really sort of going strong, going gangbusters for about 100 years now. and 
we all grow up in this culture. We all grow up in this belief system that says, you know, larger bodies are bad, smaller bodies are good, some foods are bad, some foods are good, and by implication, you're good or bad for eating those foods. And, you know, pleasure in food is dirty, pleasure in food and your body is bad, right? And that's sort of like this overarching puritanical belief system that we that we live in. And so from that place, I think it's it's so understandable that we would all grow up with this notion that like in order to be accepted, in order to be good in the eyes of our society, in order to be a morally correct person, we need to be thin, we need to eat the right foods and avoid the wrong ones, that if our bodies are quote unquote too large by societal standards, that we need to shrink them in order to meet um, those standards. And you know, that really those standards are the gateway. This, like there's this like gatekeeping of you're not allowed to have connection. You're not allowed to have relationships and love and acceptance and success, whatever that looks like to you, unless you meet these qualifications, unless you're in a thin enough body, unless you eat quote unquote perfectly. And health, you know, talk about the picture of health being distorted, right? Like we're not allowed to be seen as quote unquote healthy unless we're in the right size body or eating the right foods, you know, heavy air quotes on all these things. Um, And so, so I think it's only natural that we would feel like the pursuit of thinness and the pursuit of health in this particularly oppressive way that diet culture sells it, sells it to us. Um, is the key to to all of these things that we really want and all these deeper things that all human beings deserve, you know, so connection, pleasure, love, um, being able to, you know, feed our families, being able to be in the world in a way that feels good to us, like having our needs met, having our desires fulfilled, all of that stuff feels like it's contingent on having a certain kind of body. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> And I think one of the things that's that's so interesting, right, is like slavery, particularly the slavery that really fed the United States specifically, really kind of started around 1620. And we've got the colonizers coming over from Europe in the 14 and the 1500s. And so that's when some of the you are what you eat and we want to really distinguish ourselves as the ones who have power and privilege. So we're going to, you know, bring our European diets over and we're going to separate ourselves from indigenous diets because we don't want to be like them. But then it was really about a hundred years ago that you named that this particular kind of moralizing around food and diet culture really took root with this mix of industrialization and diet culture and capitalism and colonization all kind of swirling together with white supremacy. And that means it's not very old, you know, when we Mm -hmm. think about like the history of human beings on this planet being tens of thousands of years old, if not longer, that it's really only been about a hundred years that this particular iteration of diet culture that seems immovable, that seems to be normal, is rather new for humans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet, it's got such deep roots to these massive systems of oppression. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, naming the connections to the other systems of oppression was really important to me in writing this book, because I think that when I discovered that and when I started doing that research and seeing how deep those roots go, it just made me so angry. And I think it makes everyone angry who reads, you know, anyone who has a social justice orientation and is, you know, cares about the world and cares about equality and justice, I think is really upset when they hear about this because, you know, nobody wants to be enacting racist stereotypes or misogynistic beliefs on themselves or other people in everyday life. And yet that's kind of what we're doing when we're participating in diet culture without knowing it and without intending harm. We are doing harm to ourselves and we're perpetuating a system that harms people. So I think it's, yeah, so important to kind of pull back the curtain on where this belief system came from. And I also think it's really interesting to talk about the history because just shedding light on the fact that it really is so new in the grand scheme of human history and that, you know, up until 150 years ago, larger bodies were seen, generally speaking, you know, most of the world over as 
a positive thing and as as desirable and as yeah. something you know that, that indicated health and wealth and um, you know lovability and all of the stuff that we seek and that the the shift only happened so recently and you know that doesn't change the fact that we're we are growing up today that we only can live in the time we live and we only know the culture we know but i think it helps just give some perspective as to this really is a cultural thing this really is a cultural moment it's not just like the truth capital t you know it's not just how things are forever and ever yeah and I think, too, one of the things that's really powerful about really looking at the history and the ways that it's morphed and changed, it helps to reveal, one, that the ways that diet culture continues to thrive is because it's this ever-changing beast. Mm-hmm. You know, right now we're seeing a particular iteration of diet culture that's known as health and wellness mm-hmm. and this constant chasing of health and nutrients and being seen as healthy and well and kind of how sinister it is underneath a lot of those claims and and quests, but also like when we're talking about these bodies of ours, so much of what you write to in the book points to the ways that diet culture moves us away from autonomy and agency. Mm-hmm. And when we are talking about pleasure, relationships, sex, consent, autonomy and agency are, are the foundation that we have to build from And so often we don't even start from that place. You know, we start Mm -hmm. from a place of not knowing these bodies, of distrusting these bodies, of not knowing what we want, of not knowing how to choose. And that makes us much easier to control and manipulate and much easier for us to feel disempowered and to not um, ask for the things that we want to set boundaries. I mean, it's all Mm -hmm. tied together in these like really interesting and messy ways. Oh, yes. It's so interesting. And when you really dig into it, it does kind of feel like a giant conspiracy, you know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like to like prop up rape culture and, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy and all the rest because it keeps us so fixated. And, you know, I say us, I mean, oftentimes people assign female at birth, but, you know, increasingly people of all genders as well are experiencing this, that we're so caught up in the minutia of our food and our eating and, you know, this wellness moment that we're having, I call the wellness diet. You know, it's Mm -hmm. diet culture's new guise as wellness, but really it's just another diet. It's just another face of the same, you know, head of the same hydra. Yeah. It was always there. Um, But it, you know, keeps us so fixated on food and so at war with our bodies that we're not able to show up in the world. We're not able to consent and really know what we want. We're not able to take our power and fight back against systems of oppression. We're not, we don't have the, like the mental bandwidth to even think about what we are interested in, what our causes are, what we want to devote our lives to and how we want to change the world. So yeah, I think it really just worms its way into every aspect of your being. And conversely though, too, I think one of the hopeful things that I wanted to highlight like in the second part of this book, the first part is basically like get really angry. Like here's all this stuff that's <laughs> deeply wrong in the world. Yes. Like, I don't know. Am I allowed to swear on this? I think I am. Oh, right? yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, like here's how it's all so fucked up basically. This is how the world is a giant dumpster fire. And then yep. the second half is like, and here's how we can navigate that. Here's how we can be resilient to that. Here's how we can change that world and, you know, change our own ways of being within it. Um, yeah. And I think I think it's been really hopeful for me in my own experience of healing my relationship with food and working with clients who are healing their relationships with food to see that, you know, once we are able to make peace with food in our bodies in this very like day-to-day way of, okay, now I'm not constantly counting my macros or I'm not doing this fasting thing that has me obsessed with food for half the day or I'm not, you know, doing XYZ diet thing. Um, that you do have so much more mental space and capacity to figure out what it is you really want. And that can that intuition really comes very easily, I think, on the heels of doing the work to reconnect with your intuition around food and body stuff so that 
you know, I've seen a lot of people be like, oh, wow, my job is really not conducive to self-care. And I think I need to make a change or, wow, this relationship I'm in really isn't satisfying. And I, you know, hadn't looked at that because I was blaming it on my body size. And I was thinking that that was the problem, you know? So I think it really does. I mean, that's also hard work, right? Is making those changes. But I think it gives us the capacity to come closer in alignment with who we really are and to know who that is too. Yes. And I, and I think that's one of the things that I appreciate very much. You touch on it at several points in the book of really talking about the ways that diet culture and our relationship with food has a really significant impact on our experience of sex and pleasure inside of our relationships and with our bodies. And I think that that's I think that that's a connection that a lot of people um, struggle to make, right? Like if, if I'm not allowing myself to want in one arena, that's going to impact my ability to want in all arenas. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, we know when I don't allow myself to feel certain feelings, I'm cutting myself off from all feelings in a lot of ways. When I open myself up to pleasure, I open myself up to grief. I'm feeling more and being more present. And the same is true for our desire. And you really talk about that, you know, when, well, one, it's difficult to really feel present and to feel excited when we're underfed and undernourished (laughs) because we're restricting. But just like at a more basic level, if I'm afraid of the things that I want when it comes to food, it makes sense that it's going to be so difficult for me to feel into the things that I want and then to advocate for that when it comes to something as intimate and high stakes as sex. Right. And food and sex are so connected in a lot of ways in our culture in terms of how we talk about them, how we, you know, the sort of dual um, dichotomous relationships we have with them where it's like guilty pleasure or, Mm -hmm. you know, naughty, sinful, like, you know, it's it's bad, but we want it. And yeah. Um, you know, this kind of push pull. And so, yeah, it's, it, I think not being able to open up to our desires for food definitely curtails our desires for sex and, you know, exploring all aspects of pleasure really in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. You told this really um, tender story about yourself of a period when you were restricting and in your eating disorder and how that impacted your own sex life and fantasies. And I'd love to hear just a little bit more about kind of what was going on for you because I'm sure some listeners are going to be able to relate. Yeah. This was so interesting. I'll be curious if other people have had this experience too because I've never seen it written about in the literature, but I just feel like it has to be common or it has to be you know, a a one way that this disordered eating manifests for people. Um, But so this, this period for me was really not the, not, I guess the worst depths of my eating disorder, but I was, you know, definitely still very disordered with food was, um, you know, restricting a lot during the day, binging at night, over exercising to try to compensate was in this really toxic cycle in my relationship with food and was, dating a guy who was also actually pretty disordered with food as well, um, but in some ways was less disordered than I was and was helping me sort of come out of it, you know, one little step at a time. And he and I were in a long distance relationship. And so there was a lot of like solo sex in there as well. And um, I just, it's so funny because this had never been a thing for me. I had never had food as a fetish object. I know some people do, and that's kind of a constant for them, but that had never been anything on my radar. And during this period when I was restricting my eating and, you know, there are specific, you know, disordered eating, it kind of morphs and shape shifts over time. And there were specific foods that I was restricting myself of at that particular point in time, you know, mostly around sweets and sugar. And I was also, you know, kind of uh, paradoxically slash understandably, um, you know, becoming really interested in writing about these kinds of foods and doing Mm -hmm. like food adventures, like finding the best cupcakes in New York and the best (laughs) black and white cookies, (laughs) like all of this, you know, sort of turning it into like a a project. And and I was a journal, you know, my first career was as a journalist. I was starting out my journalism career. So I 
was kind of taking it on as a beat, you know, like food is going to be my beat and doing all this research on like different kinds of foods that I was also had this very push-pull relationship with like, oh, it's so bad for eating this. I need to like make up for it in some way or whatever. And so these you know, sweets, but particularly these particular cupcakes from a bakery near where I was living at the time became this fetish object that I would just like, they would pop into my head during sex or solo sex. And like, (laughs) I would just be like, that would be the thing that would like bring me over the edge, like (laughs) these cupcakes. And I was like, what is going on with me? And, you know, after I was able to recover more and, and stop restricting as heavily and eventually got into a place of, you know, really solid recovery and intuitive eating, I was like, I looked back on that and thought, wow, what a weird blip that, you know, it was there for a while and then it went away. And I had never had any fantasies about the food before or since, but I was just so obsessed with this Mm -hmm. particular kind of food and and so restricted and deprived of food that it kind of makes a lot of sense that they would turn into this fetish object for just a brief period. It makes total sense to me. So many people have written into the show over the years around these things that they are feeling ashamed of. They feel like they're not allowed to want or to fantasize about. And it becomes this place of constriction, which leads to shame and guilt, which then leads to thinking about it a lot and obsessing about it a lot. And it becomes compulsive. Mm -hmm. And so often, you know, we talk about allowing ourselves to to want the things that we want. Now, we may not be able to act on them. It may not be in our best interest. It may not be a good thing for a relationship. We just might not have the resources, but like we're allowed to, we're allowed to fantasize about being spanked or we're allowed to enjoy porn or whatever it is, like allowing ourselves to just say, yeah, I want these things. They interest me. They turn me on. And I can have some choice about it versus I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to think about it. And then that's all you think about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We do that exact same thing with food Mm -hmm. of I'm not going to eat the thing. I'm not going to eat the thing. I'm not going to eat the thing. And so all I'm thinking about is the thing that I'm not eating. And that really drives a lot of compulsive behaviors. Mm -hmm. Totally. It's so interesting how it crosses over and how, in my experience, it really did like fully cross over as the (laughs) thing that I was like, no, no, can't, can't, can't. Guilty pleasure then invaded my sex life. But (laughs) (laughs) it's the cupcake that did it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, sorry, you're going to have to think about me now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to find a way, damn it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's it's so interesting too when you think about like how our culture treats compulsion around sex or food where it's this like, you know, for the most part um, sort of abstinence philosophy and this mm-hmm. idea, you know, especially with food of like, these are your binge foods, so you have to stay away from them or you, you know, even if there's not this you know, because that I think that is in a certain school of thought, the philosophy. But even if there's not this idea of like stay away from certain foods, it's like resist the binge, don't do yeah. it, you know, find other things to do so that you're not binging. And it's, you know, basically these like replacement behaviors that you're trying to do in order to stop yourself from wanting the thing. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to food, you know, a lot of that is there's like the psychological piece and there's the biological piece and they're so intertwined where you know, there's a natural drive that we have to eat and it perpetuates our species. It keeps us going. It helps us survive. It's like all these good things. And that's why food gives us pleasure. And when we restrict our access to it, we cut ourselves off from it at a physical level, we are starving and our bodies are, you know, pumping out all these hormones to try to get us to eat because they don't want us to starve. Yep. At a psychological level, it's like this forbidden fruit thing where it's like, you know, don't think about a white bear or whatever. And then that's all you can think about. <laughs> like, yes. Like polar bear right in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, and I think it's, it's similar with sex in a lot of ways too, of this, you know, like, like you said, you know, sometimes there are things that we may want that are not feasible or in our best interest or whatever, which is totally fine. And having it live in our fantasy life is totally an option. Mm -hmm. But when we don't let ourselves want it or let ourselves embrace it as part of our fantasy life or as part of our 
actual life, if we want to go down that road, like then there, you know, we are just thinking about it again and again and again, it can become compulsive in all these ways that are hurtful to us. But the solution is not like, you know, stop having sex, don't want sex. It's like, you know, because sex is that same, we have that, those same, you know, urges for sex, Mm -hmm. you know, most of us, I mean, definitely there are some folks who don't, but, you know, I think a lot of us have, have natural urges for sex that are very human and very, understandable. Yeah. And I really appreciate so much of the work you do around like intuitive eating is about finding joy and satisfaction. And you talk about the restriction pendulum in your book, which lots of us know for many different reasons and it, and at different levels, right. Of like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to eat sugar. I'm not going to eat gluten. I'm only going to eat vegan. I'm only going to eat, you know, a full meal at night. Cause I'm doing smoothies the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. And then because we're literally starving ourselves and our bodies are trying to survive and because we've been obsessing, we swing the other way and then do all the things. And, you know, I think that can happen often too, when it comes to other forms of pleasure, when we're talking about sex, you know, like I'm not going to do the thing. I'm not going to masturbate. I'm not going to watch the porn. And then it becomes too much. And then we find ourselves spending like four hours going down the porn rabbit hole, (laughs) right. Of this kind of like hedonistic response when, Mm -hmm. when we have the maximum amount of choice and permission we really can just make decisions based on what do we want and how do we want mm-hmm. our day to go and what kind of serves the kinds of relationships that I want to cultivate in my life. And maybe I want to masturbate, but my kids got a soccer game. And so, mm-hmm. okay, well, I can want the thing and that's not going to happen right now. And so it doesn't feel like this like intense denial, but instead how do I find ways to build in pleasure that increase satisfaction and joy and connection and give me more choice? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so interesting how parallel those things are. Mm -hmm. Cause it really, I mean, people often say like intuitive eating means you can just eat whatever you want. Right. Like how can you literally eat whatever you want? I, I would just die, you know, my health would suffer or, you know, oftentimes it's like I would gain so much weight or whatever. And, you know, the thing is that we really can trust our bodies. We really can trust ourselves to make those choices about what we want and to eat for pleasure and satisfaction and to know that it's not going to harm our health, that actually pleasure and satisfaction are positive, beneficial things to our health and well-being. And that also having pleasure and satisfaction in our lives helps us not feel compulsive, not feel out of control. So, you know, I think a lot of people who think like, if I just ate whatever I want, I would eat nothing but cake all day or whatever, are thinking of it from the place where they feel restricted and deprived and compulsive because of that. And so of course, you know, they're going to, they're going to go for all the cake, right? Because it's, they've been restricted. It's like being, you know, pulling a pendulum over to one side, which is the restriction pendulum analogy. Like, you can't just let go of a pendulum when it's been pulled over to one side and have it stop peacefully in the middle. <laughs> like right. It's just physically impossible. That is not how physics work. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. It's like it has to swing to the other side. I think there's an equal and opposite reaction somewhere. Maybe it's something like mm-hmm. that. Um, there's maybe some drag from the air. I don't know. But, you know, it's going to swing over to the other side and it's going to feel, you know, with food when you've been restricted and you swing to the other side, you're going to feel kind of out of control. It's going to feel yeah. like a bit of a free fall. And diet culture comes in and wants to tell us like, well, see, you can't control yourself. You do get out of control when you stop restricting. And so you need me, you need my rules to follow in order to keep you in check. And that's just missing the bigger picture, which is like diet culture caused the restriction and diet culture caused that pendulum swing because you can't stay over on the side of restriction forever. Um, most bodies will fight it tooth and nail by binging or by making, even if you're staying on the same restrictive diet, reverting back to the weight that you started at or gaining mm-hmm. even more weight to protect yourself because they want you, your body wants you to survive. Um, and then that tiny percentage of people who can kind of stay in a restrictive state are you know, people with anorexia. And no matter what size body they're in, right, anorexia can happen for all sizes of bodies. And that has its own whole set of, you know, horrible consequences for your well-being. So really, no matter how you slice it, you can't stay in that restrictive state forever without it having 
some negative repercussions and, yeah. you know, even, even as much as, you know, death really, it can, it, eating disorders and restrictive eating are the most deadly um, form of mental illness. Yeah. And so, you know, so the, the body naturally wants to swing you over to that side of abundance. But if you look at it in the bigger picture and you see, okay, this is the pattern. This is, I know this is going to happen. And you can give some space and grace for the feeling of swinging over to that side of abundance, knowing that eventually you will settle in a, in a place of peace that you're not going to keep swinging forever. And that when you do those foods that you had restricted yourself of and deprived yourself of are just going to be one among many foods that give you pleasure and joy and not have this like outsize um, place in your mind or this pull on you. Like, I mean, I know for myself when I was in this place, this district, you know, disordered place, the cupcakes were calling to me, right? Even mm -hmm. in sex, they were calling to me. Or like if I had, you know, cookies left over from a party in the pantry, I could not think about anything else and wouldn't <laughs> stop until I had finished the bag of cookies, right? Yep. <laughs> and now, and that, you know, that happened with chips, that happened with cereal. There are all these different foods that I thought I just could not control myself around. And now I have those foods in the pantry all the time. Like, yep, there's foods that I eat you know, I love those foods and I eat them, some of them every day, but I'm not eating them in, in the compulsive way that I used to. So they've just, you know, taken their place in the repertoire of foods that I eat. And I also eat lots of other foods that I enjoy. And all the other foods that I enjoy, it's because I'm also letting myself have pleasure in the other moments of eating too. It's not like these austere, you know, everything is austere up until the cookies. It's like, no, everything has pleasure, has its own unique flavors and textures and brings me joy in some way. I'm not eating foods I don't like if I can help it. You know, obviously there's some privilege in that too. Um, and also there's like convenience and time. And, you know, sometimes I'm stuck with a weird sandwich from a vending machine that I don't like or whatever, but like most of the time I'm enjoying mm -hmm. and taking pleasure in food when I can um, to the extent that it's available to me. And yeah. so pleasure is available always in these other ways, which I feel like is kind of what you were saying about, you know, this idea of like, I'm not going to masturbate. I'm not going to masturbate or I'm not going to watch porn. I'm not going to watch porn. And then it builds up so much that it's like, that's all you can do. That's all you yep. can think about versus if you have access to that at other times and you know, it's not going to be taken away from you. Yeah. You know that it's always going to be there. Like, okay, well, I kind of want to masturbate now, but I got to take my kid to a soccer game. So I'll do it later once they're in bed, you know, like yep. easy. Yes. Yeah. And I think a big part of that too is, um, you know, knowing we're not going to be shamed for the wanting and that's true mm -hmm. of food. You know, it's like I can start doing some of this healing work around food for myself, but I'm deeply impacted by the people around me. And if the people around me are going to judge me or shame me or make comments about the food choices I'm making, of course, that's going to drive me back into hiding and secrets and trying to sneak things because I don't want mm -hmm. that kind of um, experience. You know, it doesn't feel good. And it's the same with sex. If my partner shames me every time I masturbate or watch porn, it's going to make it feel like I don't have the support that I need to be able to just be in the wanting. Yeah. And then it's going to yeah. keep you on that pendulum. Yep. It's keeping you on that restriction pendulum because someone, even if it's not you yourself, is sort of putting the kibosh on your wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it makes me think there's, there's two quotes from the book. One is from Dana Sturdivant, who, you know, is from Be Nourished. We love Dana. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, it's not possible to heal our relationship with food and body while trying to control the size and shape of our body. And I think that's really confronting for people because mm -hmm. there's so many of us who think maybe I've given up diets, but I'm still trying to fit in a certain size or I'm still trying to feel ready for beach weather, whatever the language is that we use to try and control our bodies. And then you have this other quote that just hit me so deeply because I had never seen it really phrased this way. And I think it speaks so beautifully to this too, right? Because like so much of the reason that we're afraid to move in the direction of our pleasure is because we think it's going to make us unhealthy or prove we're out of control or that we have no willpower, whatever it is. And the quote was, pleasure and nutrition are highly correlated. The people who let themselves eat whatever they want 
take pleasure in food and care less about nutrition tend to have improved nutrient intake and consume a greater variety of foods, which is a positive nutritional indicator than dieters. And that's like the antithesis of the story we get from all the magazines and all Mm. the health websites and all the bloggers and influencers, right? Of like, if we're just allowed to take pleasure and to be present and not worry about all the numbers and the amounts and the, the quantities and the servings, we actually end up making choices that really, truly nourish us and serve our bodies. Mm-hmm. I know. Isn't that wild? It's like yeah. mind-blowing when you think about it, that everything our culture is telling us everything the medical community is telling us and the media, you know, the health media and wellness media is telling us is so antithetical to what actually brings us true well-being. Uh, wasn't that so amazing? I, uh, it's so hard for me to wait a week for part two to drop, but in the meantime, sign up for the Body Trust Summit. It's totally free. Again, the link is in the show notes. It's way more conversations like this from a rich variety of voices. Head to Patreon. You can hear this bonus chat with Christy and I. There's 20 minutes waiting for your ears. Patreon.com slash SGR podcast. And then tune in next Sunday for more about desirability, feeling out of control around food, and doing repair work with our bodies. Until next week, bye. Used to light up like a spark Now you're blue Treading water in the dark A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sexgetsreal to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? So don't be ashamed. Love is a 